Welcome to Follow This Thread, Made in Xinjiang, a conversation with practitioners and scholars about the forced labor situation in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region and its connection to global supply chains. I'm Amy Lair, the Director and Senior Fellow at the Human Rights Initiative at CSIS. During this podcast, we'll focus on the issue of responsible sourcing, the human rights challenges that Xinjiang presents, including for global supply chains, and potential policy solutions. And we're back with some news. Remember the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, also known as the Bingtuan, that we spoke about last episode? Last week, U.S. Customs and Border Protection issued a withhold release order on all cotton and cotton products produced by the Bingtuan because of forced labor concerns. The order means that all products that contain Bingtuan cotton or cotton products can be seized by U.S. Customs and Border Protection when imported, even if the final product is produced by a wholly separate entity. The Bingtuan owns a significant portion of the cotton fields and gins in Xinjiang and some apparel factories. Therefore, this order theoretically implicates almost all cotton-containing items coming out of China or countries that import Chinese yarn or textiles, unless the supply chain is traceable, which is rare. However, CBP has a tiny staff to enforce this order, so its actual impact is questionable. Activists have been combating forced labor across the globe for years. Bennett Freeman is one such person. What he sees in Xinjiang is not entirely new, although the situation presents unique challenges. In the case of China, massive forced labor going back to the Great Leap Forward period in the mid to late 1950s, resulting in huge, horrible, tragic famines and millions and millions of people dying from from hunger and malnutrition. Bennett has been working on the nexus of business and human rights for decades, and he's worked in the private sector as a consultant to large corporations and in government as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. He also sits on numerous NGO boards. I think Bennett probably has more energy than anyone else I know, and so I can't do full justice to his biography here, but just to say that he's been working on these issues for a very long time. Bennett has dedicated his career to studying labor issues around the world, and fighting child and forced labor in a number of countries. China certainly isn't the only nation being accused of such practices. The two countries where there has been the most massive forced labor organized directly by governments have been Uzbekistan and China. When post-Soviet independent Uzbekistan for a quarter century after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And There were uh, well over a million, at times up to two million people a year, uh, broadly, forcibly compelled to pick cotton by hand in the off-harvest every autumn in a system that was directed from the top of the Uzbek government in Tashkent and carried out at the regional and local levels through a whole highly organized system of involuntary labor. Although the situation in China is arguably unique in that it's not just forced labor, but forced labor tied in with mass detention and other human rights abuses. I've known Bennett for many years. He's been at the vanguard of helping to abolish forced labor in Uzbekistan through the Cotton Campaign, which was founded in 2007. We've put together a coalition, a multi-stakeholder coalition of not only the usual suspects of trade unions, labor and human rights NGOs and advocates and socially responsible investors, but the less usual suspects of major industry, apparel industry, trade associations, and also global apparel brands. 
Often when you have a multi-stakeholder group like this, or you basically send something to committee, the experience can be akin to herding cats and it's really hard to act effectively. However, Bennett says he's been surprised. I've just been thrilled, frankly, to be part of a multi-stakeholder coalition, which has found such extraordinary, consistent, effective alignment among such a diverse group of actors. This is hard and slow work, but it's effective work. In Uzbekistan, the cotton campaign has been making a real difference. I can't emphasize enough, though, the progress that's being made in Uzbekistan. And we've seen just in the last three harvests or so, a decline in numbers of people forced into picking cotton every autumn from over 1 million down to about 100,000 in calendar year 2019. Those are the ILO's figures, about 102,000. And that's still about 102,000 too many. But the, the vector is in the right direction, and they're going to reduce those numbers further significantly, we hope, in 2020, 2021. So there is an explicit acknowledgement of the problem in Uzbekistan. The reform-minded government has been addressing it. Think about that for a second. One million down to 100,000. That's 900,000 people saved from forced labor. Nearly the entire population of Montana. The job in Uzbekistan isn't quite finished, but it's great to see this progress. So what's the secret to this success, and can we copy it? Maybe the secret is that there isn't just one secret. Bennett credits the progress in Uzbekistan to a two-pronged approach of economic pressure and diplomatic engagement. It would have been insufficient to deploy either economic pressure or diplomatic engagement. We needed, uh, neither on their own would be sufficient. Both together have been necessary and I think proven effective. How did the effort start? We really had to make the case to global apparel brands and trade associations to be part of what initially was kind of an informal boycott and then over a couple of year period became a formal boycott known as the pledge that was formulated in 2011 with companies um, committing to not knowingly source cotton from Uzbekistan until this system of massive forced labor was, was ended. And contrary to what many might assume, this isn't really a David and Goliath story with Freeman on one side and these huge global brands on the other. You know, it was not a hard sell for companies. At this point, beginning in the mid-2000s, companies had, you know, up to a decade of experience of feeling the pressure from workers, from local communities, from trade unions, from NGOs, from the media over complicity in labor rights abuses, and not least forced labor. And then comes that other prong, the U.S. government. There are two Bennett found allies. And the numbers were so big and the degree of direction um, mobilization by the government was so clear that it was not a hard sell. And I recall as early as 2008, you know, convening meetings hosted very hopefully by the U.S. Department of State, where we had a dozen or more major global brands present in the room and others on the phone with us, plotting both an economic pressure and a diplomatic engagement strategy to get the message across to Uzbekistan that this was unacceptable in the 21st century been unacceptable in the 20th century, but the 21st century, we evolved clear global standards and expectations, and that brands could not source uh, knowingly under these kinds of conditions with these reputational risks, uh, let alone moral imperatives not to be associated with such practices. While there was a lot of hard work putting together the coalition, it wasn't that hard 
politically to make the case. The situations in Xinjiang and Uzbekistan have some similarities. Uzbekistan and Xinjiang have one big thing in common and another thing that's anything but in common. What they have in common is, is that both have been the scene of massive forced labor directly mobilized by government. The two most significant and frankly grotesque examples of that in the 21st century world. But the two countries are also very different, particularly regarding their importance on the world stage and in the global economy. Uzbekistan, while a young, growing, increasingly dynamic country of about 35 million population and a growing nucleus of the Central Asia region does not pack the economic, let alone geopolitical punch of China, which has been increasingly dominating the global scene economically and politically. Uzbekistan has a lot to gain by fixing this labor system. Cotton's important to its economy, so ensuring its cotton isn't being price discounted due to the boycott is a government priority, and it's an opportunity to improve the country's economic trajectory. Also, Uzbekistan has a reformist government right now that's open to doing things differently. China's in a period of strong nationalism and retrenchment. It's also a rapidly growing market where China consumes many of its own goods and also presents an opportunity for Western brands to increase their sales. China knows how to use that power. It can and will reciprocate against governments or companies that criticize it. It's one thing for companies to look at comparably grotesque abuses, use of forced labor in both countries, and to tell themselves morally that they've got to do something. It's another thing, as many companies see it, to take a public stand relative to Uzbekistan when there's not much of an economic, let alone political price to pay versus China, which apparel brands see not only as a major sourcing platform, but also, of course, as maybe the largest consumer goods market in the world. So China isn't just about factories, it's about stores. It's not just about producers, it's about consumers. So this is really difficult. And I think these brands are going to feel some pressure. It's going to be uncomfortable and they're going to have to make some choices. I think many or most um, in the short term will probably remain silent. The U.S. government's own strained relationship with China makes diplomatic engagement challenging. Politically, this is a very tough period. China, having been on the defense, now on the offense, it thinks in its response on COVID-19, the tremendous tensions in the U.S.-China relationship uh, moving from trade to trade war to now the fight over COVID. You know, and add to that, it's not just the U.S., it's Europe. There's a debate within the EU and on the, within the U.K. as to, you know, to what extent and if so, how to take on China. But this is not a time when there's much of a transatlantic convergence on anything, including China. There's not much political will or capacity, I would say, on either side of the Atlantic to have much of a concerted effort on anything, not least including China. There are other actors in the world who could get into this, but um, all have to weigh their own relationships with China. When creating this podcast, we wanted to start exploring the availability of tools for this problem. What tools does the U.S. or its allies have in its toolkit that can be useful in combating forced labor in China? And as we were examining these differences between Uzbekistan and China, we asked Bennett what he believed the most important tools can be. The mechanism that worked in Uzbekistan and paved the way for its progress is a pretty simple concept. I'd say none more important than a tool that can be described in one word, monitoring. So it was clear to us when we 
put together the campaign in late 2007, early 2008, that there would need to be monitoring on the ground during the autumn harvest in Uzbekistan in order to really assess and quantify to the extent possible the scope of the problem, which was apparent through people's lived experience. It was apparent visually. It was uh, it had been documented in some ways, but we needed authoritative monitoring. Bennett and his colleagues reached out to the ILO, otherwise known as the International Labor Organization. We called on the government of Uzbekistan to invite the uh, ILO to Uzbekistan for two purposes. First, to undertake monitoring of the harvests, and second, to undertake uh, technical assistance over the long term to actually eliminate forced labor once its full extent could be monitored, assessed, and quantified. Bennett first made the call in 2009, but it wasn't until 2013 that the ILO was invited in by the U.S. government. The focus initially for the first several years was really on child labor, but monitoring began and through the combined efforts of the Uzbek government and the ILO, systemic use of child labor, the cotton harvest was more or less eliminated by 2016 or probably 17. And it was also in that period that the basis was laid for monitoring across the board that in turn became the critical tool for when the new reform-minded president announced a commitment to end uh, forced labor of adults. So if monitoring worked in Uzbekistan, why not China? Well, first we need to take another look at the tools that activists call monitoring and labor audits. These are critical tools for understanding the conditions in supply chains. They're used to carry out what's often called due diligence. And without that due diligence, it's really hard to know what the true conditions of workers and supply chains are. The implications here are that in the absence of being able to conduct credible due diligence, there is no way to ensure that there is no forced labor if the supply chain cuts through the XUAR. That's Penelope Karitsis, who you heard speaking at the end of our last episode. Penelope works with the Workers' Rights Consortium and is focused on forced labor in Xinjiang in her research and advocacy. We're discussing credible supply chain due diligence with her. What does that mean? How do monitoring and auditing add up to credible due diligence? There are several steps that are involved in traditional labor audits. We have the worker interview component. And what the WRC does, our methodology is we typically interview workers away from their workplace where um, management won't interfere with their responses, where they're more comfortable to speak to us candidly. Other components include reviewing documents, reviewing payroll, reviewing various uh, factory level documents. And so another risk there is the falsification of documents, which happens a lot. And so auditors need to be very diligent. There's one more component, which is a factory visit. And that's mostly in terms of what the WRC's work, that's mostly to look at health and safety. So basically, you show up, you review some documents, you look around, you interview workers. It sounds really simple, but it never is, and especially not in Xinjiang. Right now, what we're seeing in the XUAR is that because of the ubiquitous surveillance apparatus, it's impossible for workers to speak candidly to an auditor without fear of reprisal. If you, as a worker or a Uyghur, push against the government in Xinjiang in some way, it's not just you who will face repercussions. 
And we've seen this kind of reprisal happen even beyond the XUAR with some family members that are refugees in other countries being targeted by the Chinese government. So there's a substantial risk of reprisal that just makes getting credible worker testimony impossible in this region and in this context. Xinjiang is an ancient land of caravans and the old Silk Road, landlocked next to Central Asia. Xinjiang and the abuses occurring there can often seem remote. But although Xinjiang is culturally distinct, it's intimately connected to China's manufacturing might and its exports. Given that, what do we do? Politically and economically, the situation in Xinjiang is actually very different from Uzbekistan. Companies or human rights NGOs don't have the ability to conduct meaningful due diligence. And we're beginning to realize that this is an issue that can't simply be contained in one geography. Our option, according to Penelope... It's a very challenging situation, and I would say it's the forced labor crisis that leading apparel companies are embroiled in is without precedent. However, the answer is quite clear. They're given the impossibility of conducting due diligence, given the fact that virtually any workplace in the region is uh, potentially a locus of forced labor. The only option is to leave. The only option is to exit the region at every level of the supply chain from cotton to finished goods. What does it mean to leave? How hard is that? In our last episode of Follow This Thread, we'll take a closer look at an actual thread, the movement of raw cotton into finished product, and examine how supply chains work in Xinjiang and what targeted solutions may actually make a difference. There are two crucial components to this story. The first is whether or not products made in Xinjiang are in fact made with forced labor. And as we just discussed, conducting audits to tell you whether that's the case is incredibly challenging. The second is whether that Xinjiang product, cotton, solar panels, or something else, ends up in your home or on your person. Look at your clothes. Do you know for certain that what you're wearing wasn't made in Xinjiang? It's time to follow this thread. In our last episode, we'll examine the issue of traceability and the critical role it plays in this puzzle to trace the thread back to its ultimate source. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 